corporate capitalism, that is, the form of capitalism in which production is largely carried out within large, bureaucratically organized firms, first emerged in America and Germany in the late 19th century. During most of the 20th century, large industrial corporations were very much independent of, and to some degree even hostile to, the interests of what was called high finance. Executives and firms dedicated to producing breakfast cereals or agricultural machinery saw themselves as having far more in common with production line workers in their own firms than they did with speculators and investors, and the internal organization of firms reflected this. It was only in the 1970s that the financial sector and the executive classes, that is the upper echelons of the various corporate bureaucracies, effectively fused. CEOs began paying themselves in stock options, moving back and forth between utterly unrelated companies, priding themselves on the number of employees they could lay off. This set off a vicious cycle whereby workers, who no longer felt any loyalty to the corporations that felt none toward them, had to be increasingly monitored, managed, and surveilled. The results were not just some sort of recalibration or readjustment of existing forms of capitalism. In many ways, it marked a profound break with what had come before. If the existence of bullshit jobs seems to defy the logic of capitalism, one possible reason for their proliferation might be that the existing system isn't capitalism. Or at least, isn't any sort of capitalism that would be recognizable from the works of Adam Smith, Karl Marx, or for that matter, Ludwig von Mises or Milton Friedman. It is increasingly a system of rent extraction, where the internal logic, the system's laws of motion, as the Marxists like to say, are profoundly different from capitalism, since economic and political imperatives have come to largely merge. In many ways, it resembles classic medieval feudalism, displaying the same tendency to create endless hierarchies of lords, vassals, and retainers. In other ways, notably in its managerialist ethos, it is profoundly different. And the whole apparatus, rather than replacing old-fashioned industrial capitalism, is instead superimposed on top of it, blending together in a thousand points in a thousand different ways. Hardly surprising, then, that the situation seems so confusing that even those directly in the middle don't really know quite what to make of it. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, cooperation, non-domination in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. And yes, today I am going to make the claim that capitalism is a form of anarchism. I'm following along the David Graeber quote that I started off with, but whereas he suggests that industrial capitalism was what we had in the 19th and 20th century, I don't think that's true either. In fact, in the same way that we have never had actual communism, I don't think we have ever had actual capitalism. I think it's been a form of feudalism all along. Don't worry, I am not and have not become an anarcho-capitalist. I'm going to call this capitalistic anarchism as an alternative to anarcho-capitalism, which is one of the worst things. I'll address it briefly. Uh, I will say I've been asked to do another roundup of the important political terminology, so I will have that episode for you coming out at some point. I'm not sure when I'll get to it, but it is coming, and I will finally define anarcho-capitalism for you. So if you hate capitalism um, because of how things have been over the past 200 years in the West, I would say that's the same as hating communism 
for how things were for 80 years in Russia. It was called communism. People wanted communism. There were theories of communism, but ultimately it was just a form of authoritarian feudalism. It wasn't communism at all. The same can be said for capitalism. So let's start where capitalism starts with Adam Smith, the great theorist of capitalism. If you ask a right-winger why we have to have capitalism, they will quote Adam Smith to you. Here's some Adam Smith for you. Without the assistance and cooperation of many thousands, the very meanest person in a civilized country could not be provided, even according to what we very falsely imagine, the easy and simple manner in which he is commonly accommodated. Without the assistance and cooperation of many thousands, Smith says, capitalism is just a really big form of mutual aid that uses money. In that sense, capitalism is compatible with anarchism. Smith goes on. Among civilized and thriving nations, on the contrary, though a great number of people do not labor at all, many of whom consume the produce of ten times, frequently of a hundred times more labor than the greater part of those who work. Wow, this sounds like Proudhon or Marx. For people to work in capitalism, there needs to be lots of cooperation. Also, something bad happens when you're not capitalistic enough, which is you have people sitting around, rich people, who are eating the labor of the poor. What is this? Is this communism? No, this is capitalism. But of course, it's not all wonderful communism in Adam Smith. There are lots of right-wing things in here. Here's one. Yet the produce of the whole labor of society is so great that all are often abundantly supplied, and a workman, even of the lowest and poorest order, if he is frugal and industrious, may enjoy a greater share of necessities. But by greater share of necessities, he means than of in a hunter-gatherer or any sort of non-capitalist system. This is what the rich people like about Adam Smith, is he says, hey, even the poor people are better off under capitalism than any other system. And Adam Smith might be right. But also, the system that has created all these rich people is not capitalism. Here's another glorious quote from Smith, he's talking about his state of nature, his fantasy of what things were like before capitalism started, and uh, the new David Graeber, David Wingro book, The Dawn of Everything, has utterly destroyed these fantasies. Nevertheless, some of these fantasies are left-wing, and Smith's is left-wing. Here we go. This original state of things, in which the laborer enjoyed the whole produce of his own labor, could not last beyond the first introduction of the appropriation of land and the accumulation of stock. As soon as land becomes private property, the landlord demands a share of almost all the produce which the laborers can either raise or collect from it. His rent makes the first deduction from the produce of the labor which is employed upon the land. Wow, pro property is theft, says uh, Adam Smith. This is just a paraphrase of Proudhon's arguments in property and theft. And Proudhon invented anarchism like a hundred years after this was written. I don't think you could write a stronger condemnation of landlords than if you were Karl Marx. The landlord takes most of the stuff. What does he give to society? Nothing, nothing at all. This is capitalism. In capitalism, landlords are bad and cooperation is good. What's more, Smith criticizes something that he calls corporations a lot, but by corporations he means 
the guilds because he wants everything to be free flowing and he thinks a guild like if you think of a modern day university where you can't have a job there unless you've gone through one million different training programs that's the closest thing we have to a guild today he thinks that's bad that's what he calls corporations but he has much harsher words for joint stock companies and joint stock companies are what we now call corporations ready for this the trade of a joint stock company is always managed by a court of directors this court, indeed, is frequently subject, in many respects, to the control of a general court of proprietors. But the greater part of these proprietors seldom pretend to understand anything of the business of the company. And when the spirit of faction happens not to prevail among them, give themselves no trouble about it, but receive contentedly such half-yearly or yearly dividend as the directors think proper to make to them. This total exemption from trouble and from risk, beyond a limited sum, encourages many people to become adventurers in joint stock companies who would, upon no account, hazard their fortunes in any private co-partnery. Such companies, therefore, commonly draw to themselves much greater stocks than any private co-partnery can boast of. The directors of such companies, however, being the managers rather of other people's money than of their own, it cannot be well expected that they should watch over it with the same anxious vigilance with which the partners in a private co-partnery frequently watch over their own. Like the stewards of a rich man, they are apt to consider attention to small matters as not for their master's honor, and very easily give themselves a dispensation from having it. Negligence and profusion, therefore, must always prevail, more or less, in the management of the affairs of such a company. Without an exclusive privilege, they have commonly mismanaged the trade. With an exclusive privilege, they have both mismanaged and confined it. If you have corporations, says Adam Smith, you do not have capitalism. The basic idea of capitalism is that you should take your money and use it to hire people and then make more money based on the work those people do and then use that money to make more money. The enemy in Adam Smith is not the worker. He loves workers. He says workers are great and he says capitalists are great. But what's bad are the landlords, the rentiers, meaning uh, not a renter, but in English would be a rentee or just a landlord. People who have something and charge other people to use it. They ruin everything. And who are the worst landlords, Smith says? Corporations. As soon as you have corporations, you don't have capitalism anymore. But they had big joint stock companies back in the 17th century. So there has been no Capitalism. According to Smith's definition of capitalism, capitalism hasn't happened yet. Let's turn to Marx. Marx is usually uh, opposed to Smith when people are arguing about politics, but in fact, he and Smith agree on most things. This is why Graeber lumps Marx and Smith together. He is the best historian, Marx is, of capitalism. You, you can disagree with his political views, but not his view of how capitalism works. That's in all of the textbooks. Marx spent decades in the British Library crunching all the numbers, explaining how capitalism works. The only people I can think of who compare are John Maynard Keynes and Thomas Piketty, and they both agree with him. But he was tragically, tragically wrong about how capitalism worked. He calls them the, the bourgeoisie. We use bourgeoisie to mean middle class, but uh, the middle class is really more usually the petit bourgeoisie, the lawyers and shopkeepers and accountants. The bourgeoisie are factory owners. And these days, we have far fewer small factory owners, and we mostly just have the grand bourgeoisie. So John D. Rockefeller, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, that's what Marx means when he says bourgeoisie in this quote that's coming up. In the earlier epochs of history, 
we find almost everywhere a complicated arrangement of society into various orders, a manifold gradation of social rank. In ancient Rome, we have patricians, knights, plebeian slaves. In the Middle Ages, feudal lords, vassals, guildmasters, journeymen, apprentices, serfs. In almost all of these classes, again, subordinate gradations. The modern bourgeois society that has sprouted from the ruins of feudal society has not done away with class antagonisms. It has but established new classes, new conditions of oppression, new forms of struggle in place of the old ones. Our epoch, the epoch of the bourgeoisie, possesses, however, this distinctive feature. It has simplified the class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other bourgeoisie, and proletariat. From the serfs of the Middle Ages sprang the chartered burghers of the earliest towns. From these burgesses, the first elements of the bourgeoisie were developed. The discovery of America, the rounding of the Cape, opened up fresh ground for the rising bourgeoisie. The East Indian and Chinese markets, the colonization of America, trade with the colonies, the increase in the means of exchange and in commodities generally, gave to commerce, to navigation, to industry, an impulse never before known, and thereby, to the revolutionary element in the tottering feudal society, a rapid development. The feudal system of industry, under which industrial production was monopolized by closed guilds, now no longer sufficed for the growing wants of the new markets. The manufacturing system took its place. So, according to Marx, there's just these two sides once capitalism gets going. The rich, the bourgeoisie, and uh, their employees, their, the, the petty bourgeoisie, the lawyers and such not and the proletariat, the workers. It's not complicated anymore, he says. We don't have all these gradations. We don't have lords and vassals and guildmasters and journeymen and apprentices and serfs. It's just the rich and the poor, because that's what capitalism does. Here's Marx's most famous formulation of how capitalism simplifies society. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production, and thereby the relations of production, and with them the whole relations of society. Conservation of the old modes of production in unaltered form was, on the contrary, the first condition of existence for all earlier industrial classes. Constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguished the bourgeois epoch from all earlier ones. All fixed, fast-frozen relations, with their chain of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions, are swept away. All new-formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air. All that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his real relations with his kind. So that's what the bourgeoisie do. They destroy every institution except for capitalism. And Marx thinks this is pretty great. He hates all those old institutions. He hates religion. He hates government. He hates corporations. He hates elitist form of art. And he's like, yay, the capitalists will destroy all of those things, and then we can just destroy the capitalists. But he was completely wrong. Completely, completely wrong. <laughs> Let's go back to his list of social positions that no longer exist. Feudal lords, vassals, guildmasters, journeymen, apprentices, serfs, and then gradations underneath all those. Okay, maybe we don't have those anymore. But we have CEOs and CFOs and COOs and CIOs. We have full professors, associate professors, assistant professors, adjunct professors, assistant adjunct professors, visiting assistant professors. We have paid interns and unpaid interns. We have assistant directors of communications and assistants to the directors of communications. We have deputy assistant undersecretaries of defense. 
He said that the old institutions would be destroyed. I haven't noticed the Catholic Church and Parliament being destroyed. He said the new institutions would be destroyed. I haven't noticed IBM and Exxon being destroyed. We keep getting new institutions that stick around, as opposed to disappearing, and the old ones haven't disappeared either. They haven't melted into thin air, and the holy hasn't been profaned. All of these things, the corporations, the government, bureaucracy, the Ivy League, the church, Wall Street, they just keep getting stronger. And Graeber is right. We just live in new feudalism, one in which the bosses, aka managers, not lords and bishops, have the power. Graeber describes this as managerial feudalism. It is not the classic aristocratic feudalism, and it is not the capitalism described by Smith and Marx. Graeber is writing in his book, Bullshit Jobs, about how the fact that most people who work for a corporation don't need to have that job, which doesn't make any sense. If your goal is to spend money, to make money, you would fire people who don't make money. But that's not what happens. Here's Graeber's explanation. Under classic capitalist conditions, it does indeed make no sense to hire unnecessary workers. Maximizing profits means paying the least number of workers the least amount of money possible. In a very competitive market, those who hire unnecessary workers are not likely to survive. Of course, this is why doctrinaire libertarians, or for that matter, orthodox Marxists, will always insist that our economy can't really be riddled with bullshit jobs, that all this must be some sort of illusion. But by a feudal logic, where economic and political considerations overlap, the same behavior makes perfect sense. The whole point is to grab a pot of loot, either stealing it from one's enemies or extracting it from commoners by means of fees, tolls, rents, and levies, and then redistributing it. In the process, one creates an entourage of followers that is both the visual measure of one's pomp and magnificence, and at the same time, a means of distributing political favor. For instance, by buying off potential malcontents, rewarding faithful allies, goons, or creating an elaborate hierarchy of honors and titles for lower-ranking nobles to squabble over. If all this very much resembles the inner workings of a large corporation, I would suggest that this is no coincidence. Such corporations are less and less about making, building, fixing, or maintaining things, and more and more about political processes of appropriating, distributing, and allocating money and resources. This means that once again, it's increasingly difficult to distinguish politics and economics, as we have seen with the advent of too-big-to-fail banks, whose lobbyists typically write the very laws by which government supposedly regulates them, but even more so by the fact that financial profits themselves are gathered largely through direct juro-political means. J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, for example, the largest bank in America, reported in 2006 that roughly two-thirds of its profits were derived from fees and penalties. And finance in general really refers to trading in other people's debts. Debts which, of course, are enforceable in courts of law. I want to give you a second to just take in that fact. In 2006, most of J.P. Morgan's profits came from fees and penalties. According to the capitalists, what they do is generate value. They create money. We need to let them do stuff so that wealth can be created. And maybe they're right. Maybe we do need to let the capitalists do stuff to create wealth. I don't think so, but fair enough. But J.P. Morgan isn't doing anything. J.P. Morgan is a landlord. J.P. Morgan is a rentier. J.P. Morgan is a parasite. It is sitting between the people who want to do things and the people who want to work with them and hoovering up their money. This isn't capitalism. 
Now I'd like you to think for a second about your own workplace or school, or if you're like me, have neither workplace nor school, just the economic system in general. Does it seem dedicated to maximizing profits? Does it seem like efficiency is the goal? Is it a true meritocracy where the best people get rewarded? Or does it seem like it's simply designed to maintain the status quo, make the bosses look good, and promote mediocrity? It seems to me that if you think about it for just a second, you will see that that's how it is, that Graeber is right and Marx was completely wrong. But that doesn't necessarily mean Marx was wrong about capitalism. This just isn't capitalism. We've heard from a contemporary anarchist on this, Graeber. Now let's hear from a contemporary capitalist, Barry Ritholtz. What we have is precisely what Adam Smith warned about, crony capitalism, corporations getting in the way and ruining everything. Capitalism for the wealthy and the corporations working with the government to make it happen. Here's what Ritholtz writes. We can define crony capitalism as the return on capital generated not by innovation and risk-taking, but rather through the unholy alliance between the business and political classes. Instead of genuine competition, they use the state's power to legislate, regulate, grant handouts, permits, government licenses, special tax breaks, and other dispensations as favors to enrich each other. I make this observation as an unabashed capitalist. Over the course of my career, I've started several businesses, some of which have succeeded. In my day job, I invest capital for other capitalists. Around the world, it is undeniable that capitalism has produced more wealth and human well-being than any other system this world has known. The global gains in income that has raised millions out of poverty the past several decades is directly attributed to major economies such as China embracing, at least in part, some form of market-based capitalism. So there again, you'll always see this right-wing element when people are about talking about capitalism. Oh, we need capitalism because it's the only way to make enough stuff that people won't be poor. This is BS, but it comes from Smith. You'll get it in Ritholtz. You'll get it everywhere. How could capitalism have helped all these people, I would say, considering there hasn't ever been capitalism. There's only been crony capitalism. But Ritholtz does have harsh things to say to people who defend crony capitalism. And he has some amazing examples of the nightmare that is crony capitalism. Here's Ritholtz. Carried interest. This may be the single most outrageous tax loophole in America. This egregious tax break lets a few politically well-connected rich people, many earning many millions or even billions of dollars, to pay a much lower income tax rate than those earning middle incomes. Despite a promise of candidate Donald Trump, it somehow survived the 2017 tax reform mostly intact. So this is exactly what Graeber is talking about. The economic and the political come together. Rich people write laws that say that rich people get to stay rich. That is not capitalism. That is feudalism. That's the earls and the dukes getting together with the king to make sure the king, the earls, and the dukes all stay rich. But Graeber has an even better example of crony capitalism. Here's Graeber's conversation with a government economist. Government official. Well, you have to understand the approach taken by U.S. prosecutors to financial fraud is always to negotiate a settlement. They don't want to have to go to trial. The upshot is always that the financial institution has to pay a fine, sometimes in the hundreds of millions, but they don't actually admit to any criminal liability. Their lawyers simply say they are not going to contest the charge, but if they pay, they haven't technically been found guilty of anything. Graeber. 
So you're saying if the government discovers that Goldman Sachs, for instance, or Bank of America has committed fraud, they effectively just charge them a penalty fee. Official. That's right. Graver. So in that case, okay, I guess the real question is this. Has there ever been a case where the amount the firm had to pay was more than the amount of money they made from the fraud itself? Official. Oh no, not to my knowledge. Usually it's substantially less. Graver. So what are we talking here? 50%? Official. I'd say more like 20 to 30% on average, but it varies considerably case by case. Graver. Which means, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't that effectively mean the government is saying, you can commit all the fraud you like, but if we catch you, you're going to have to give us our cut? Official. Well, obviously I can't put it that way myself as long as I have this job. Okay, so that's the end of the Graver story. And you can see that this makes sense as a government action. If they think of themselves as democratic, if they think of themselves as separate from the banks, if they think of themselves as getting one back from the little guy. But once you realize, as Graver does, that the main way that rich people get money is by colluding with the government, the fact that the government takes a chunk from them starts to seem a lot more like the mafia than like some form of liberal democracy. I've got lots more examples of crony capitalism and even some more capitalists attacking it, but I think you get the picture. Also, I should say, I have no doubt that Barry Ritzholz is up to his neck in crony capitalism, even if he complains about it, because there is no capitalism that is not crony capitalism. Why don't we have real capitalism? For the same reason that we never had real communism, people are simply not good enough for capitalism. Remember, the basic idea behind Adam Smith is what he calls the invisible hand. If all of us are out for our own best interests, everyone will win. I'm going to make the best bread I can, as cheaply as I can, and sell it to people. And if they like my bread, they'll buy more of my bread, and I will win. That's capitalism. As long as we trade fairly and treat each other as individuals, it will work out pretty well. The problem is that this creature that is always fair in their business dealings is what's called homo economicus, the economic human who always behaves precisely as they should to maximize their long-term value. Homo economicus would never do managerial feudalism. It's a terrible way for making money in the long run. Cheating, collusion, and monopolies are all bad for everyone in the long run. This is something that Martin Luther King points out in his work on these issues. Here's King. The assistant director of the Office of Economic Opportunity, Hyman Bookbender, in a frank statement on December 29, 1966, declared that the long-range costs of adequately implementing programs to fight poverty, ignorance, and slums will reach $1 trillion. He was not awed or dismayed by this prospect, but instead pointed out that the growth of the gross national product during the same period makes this expenditure comfortably possible. It is, he said, as simple as this, quote, the poor can stop being poor if the rich are willing to become even richer at a slower rate, close quote. Furthermore, he predicted that unless a, quote, substantial sacrifice is made by the American people, close quote, the nation can expect further deterioration of the cities, increased antagonisms between races, and continued disorders in the streets. So sacrificing a trillion dollars is a really smart play, a good idea from an economic standpoint. It's not a sacrifice. If you invest a trillion dollars into poor people, they will get richer, and then they will shop at your businesses, and you will get richer. It's a win-win. 
if you are homo economicus. But if instead people are just worried about how good they look and making sure that their title is super fancy and that they have lots of people reporting to them, well then, they're not going to do capitalism, are they? They're going to do feudalism. People simply aren't good enough for capitalism, which is hilarious because, as you know, <laughs> right-wingers are always saying that people aren't good enough for anarchism and communism. In fact, Kropotkin wrote about this. Here's Kropotkin. It shows the fallacy of assuming that people cannot be trusted to cooperate while thinking that giving the same flawed individual's power is a good idea. One of the commonest objections to communism is that men are not good enough to live under a communist state of things. They would not submit to a compulsory communism, but they are not yet ripe for free anarchistic communism. Men are not good enough for communism, but are they good enough for capitalism? If all men were good-hearted, kind, and just, they would never exploit one another, although possessing the means of doing so. With such men, the private ownership of capital would be no danger. The capitalist would hasten to share his profits with the workers and the best remunerated workers with those suffering from occasional causes. If men were provident, they would not produce velvet and articles of luxury while food is wanted in cottages. They would not build palaces as long as there are slums. If men had a deeply developed feeling of equity, they would not oppress other men. Politicians would not cheat their electors. Parliament would not be a chattering and cheating box. And policemen would refuse to bludgeon the Trafalgar Square talkers and listeners. And if men were gallant, self-respecting, and less egotistic, even a bad capitalist would not be a danger. The workers would soon have him reduced to the role of a simple comrade manager. Even a king would not be dangerous because the people would merely consider him as a fellow unable to do better work and therefore entrusted with signing some stupid papers sent out to other cranks calling themselves kings. But men are not those free-minded, independent, provident, loving, and compassionate fellows which we should like to see them. And precisely, therefore, they must not continue living under the present system which permits them to oppress and exploit one another. Ta-da! Thank you, Kropotkin. If you do capitalism, you will get feudalism. Capitalism lets individuals have enormous power and trust them to do the right thing with it. But once people have power, they'll stop doing the right thing with it. They'll even stop using it to make money, do competition, find efficiencies. They'll just use their power to try and keep their power over other people. The capitalists say that people aren't good enough for communism. If that is so, it is pretty obvious to me that people are definitely not good enough to be CEOs, are not good enough to be school principals, are not good enough to be politicians, are not good enough to be bosses. Why would you trust that since everyone might be bad, some people should be trusted to be bosses? And actually, Smith doesn't. Remember, Smith says once you have corporations, you have bosses as opposed to owners. Owners are going to work hard to do the right thing, which is to say that you can own and run a factory with 30 people. That's an owner. That's fine. But what if there's a factory of 3,000 people? The owner isn't actually running it anymore. Now that owner is a landlord and the people running it aren't owners. Now those people are bosses. And if you have landlords and bosses, you can't have capitalism. Kropotkin is right and he's agreeing with Adam Smith. Okay, so now it's time for my solution, my capitalist anarchism. Remember, this is different from anarcho-capitalism and anarcho-capitalism is terrible. I do think there might be a way to adapt capitalism to not create 
feudalism. So this thing, capitalist anarchism, market socialism, it bears some resemblance to the Nordic model, could, I think, eventually create an anarchist utopia. I would rather we create anarchism the Kropotkin way, grassroots community organizing and mutual aid that eventually gets built into these larger systems. But right now, the political process and money are blocking that from happening. So another option is to try and create anarchism using money and the political process, and then that will eventually eliminate money and the political process. I'm not saying this would work, but I think it would. And you only have to do two things. The first one is a universal basic income. Uh, I described UBI in a previous episode that came out on Martin Luther King Day. This just means that when people make money, we tax it. And instead of the government holding onto that money and doing, you know, quote, good things with it, they just give it to everyone and give it to everyone evenly. But here's the next big innovation. This is a clever, clever bit. It comes from a guy named Henry George, who was friends with Jane Addams and was a big inspiration for MLK. He's recently become popular again in left-wing circles, which is wonderful. When I was reading Henry George in grad school, I'd never met anyone who had ever read him besides my professors. What George proposes essentially is a wealth tax. Like Elizabeth Warren, he, he's okay with capitalism. Elizabeth Warren says she is capitalist to her bones. And his enemies, just like Elizabeth Warren's, describe him as a socialist. And he is both. He is a capitalist and a socialist, just like Elizabeth Warren is. Although I think he's much less technocratic and top-down than she is because, you know, she's a lawyer. Because she's, you know, a lawyer and a Harvard professor. Those people just have to believe that experts have all the answers. Otherwise, they can't go to work. Here's Henry George, and he's calling for a single tax. A tax just on land. Which he thinks, and I'll talk about this in a second, is by far the most important form of wealth. The effect of substituting for the manifold taxes now imposed a single tax on the value of land would hardly lessen the number of conscious taxpayers, for the division of land now held on speculation would much increase the number of landholders. But it would so equalize the distribution of wealth as to raise even the poorest above that condition of abject poverty in which public considerations have no weight while it would at the same time cut down those overgrown fortunes which raise their possessors above concerning government. The dangerous classes politically are the very poor and the very rich. It is not the taxes that he is conscious of paying that gives a man a stake in the country an interest in its government. It is the consciousness of feeling that he is an integral part of the community, that its prosperity is his prosperity and its disgrace his shame. Let but the citizen feel this. Let him be surrounded by all the influences that spring from and cluster around a comfortable home, and the community may rely upon him, even to limb or to life. Men do not vote patriotically any more than they fight patriotically because of their payment of taxes. Whatever conduces to the comfortable and independent material condition of the masses will best foster public spirit, will make the ultimate governing power more intelligent and more virtuous. But it may be asked, if the tax on land values is so advantageous a model of raising revenue, how is it that so many other taxes are resorted to in preference by all governments? The answer is obvious. The tax on land values is the only tax of any importance that does not distribute itself. It falls upon the owners of land, and there is no way which they can shift the burden upon anyone else. Hence, a large and powerful class are directly interested in keeping down the tax on land values and substituting, as a means for raising the required revenue, taxes on other things. Nearly all of the manifold taxes by which the people of the United States are now burdened have been imposed rather with a view to private advantage than to the raising of revenue. 
And the great obstacle to the simplification of taxation is these private interests whose representatives cluster in the lobby whenever a reduction of taxation is proposed to see that the taxes by which they profit are not reduced. Wow. Okay. I know that was some 19th century prose, but I also think that is some really good stuff. I mean, in that last paragraph, he's agreeing with Smith. He's agreeing with Graeber. He's agreeing with Barry Ritholtz. The rich people become landlords and they cease to be capitalists. They just sit on huge chunks of money. What's the problem with the world? He says, well, there's very rich people and there's very poor people. The very poor people have no reason not to rise up and destroy America because they're starving. The very rich people have no reason to protect America because they have whatever they want and view everyone else as their enemy. So what's the answer? A land tax. A land tax. We can extend it to wealth, and I'll talk about that in a second, but let me give you George's almost magic explanation of why a land tax would work, and I think it would work pretty well. The idea, and this is where capitalism comes in, is to make people do stuff with land. No one will own land for no reason. Right now, tons of people own land for no reason, which is to say they think if they hold on to it long enough, they will get richer. There's landlords who are bad because they're getting richer by letting other people use their land. And then there's land speculators who are way worse because they're getting rich by not letting other people use their land. If you're a land speculator, which means you're sitting on land that you're not using and there's a huge tax on it, what are you going to do? You're going to lose the land or you're going to use the land. And either way, that's going to create jobs, labor, capital, that flow that Marx and Smith are talking about. To think about another way, there are enormous, enormous farms that are not that productive on a per acre basis. I mean, besides the fact that the government pays lots of farms not to produce anything, these huge, huge farms are way less productive than a bunch of small farms would be. So what do we have? We have these huge farms making huge profits and a lot of hungry people, some of whom would like to be farmers. Well, what if the tax on that land went up crazy high? The company wouldn't be profitable anymore. It would have to sell the land. Would it sell it to some other giant company? No, that company is just going to go out of business also. Who would they sell it to? They would sell it to small farmers who would have a low tax bill put their own labor into it because people actually do want to farm. And then the result would be all sorts of wonderful fruits and vegetables that other people can buy with their universal basic income. It's magical. It's anarcho-communism. And it's also capitalism. Another way to think about this is um, city development. If you want to think about development, it makes sense to build buildings on land, buildings that can be used someplace like Manhattan. Now, not everyone is a fan of skyscrapers, but it seems to me that skyscrapers are good in the right place. But if we look, we actually seem to have fewer skyscrapers than we should in lots of places. And it's because people can get rich owning some old building that they do not develop because the land just becomes worth more and more and more and more. Eventually, they sell it to some billionaire, they get super rich, and the skyscraper does get built. So who wins? The person who owns the land and the person who's already rich enough to buy the land. But for 30 years, that land sat almost unused. Henry George says this wouldn't happen anymore. What buildings would get built? All the buildings we need. If you think about the housing crisis in California, buildings cannot get built because the governments aren't allowing them to be built. But why are the governments not allowing them to be built? Because the people who own single-family homes in California don't want there to be apartment buildings in California. 
Apartment buildings, since they are worth more as property than houses, would cost a lot more to own because of taxes. But if you start taxing the land, all of a sudden, all of those owners in California are going to start clamoring for apartment buildings to be built. They will have to. They cannot afford the taxes on that chunk of land without turning their house into an apartment building and boo-hoo, they'll have to live in it with four other families. That is the invisible hand. If you have a chunk of property, you have to do something with it. And if you do not have a chunk of property, you've got UBI coming in. You can use that to buy food and eventually to buy a chunk of property. And like I said, we could extend this to wealth. Let's say you build a big corporation like that big farm. Well, eventually you are going to build it too big. You're going to buy too much property. The taxes are going to get you and you're going to go bankrupt. But that's okay. You've got UBI so you don't starve. And some other entrepreneurs will rush in and buy up all that property. Then you can try again, but this time you will not build as big of a company because you've learned that if you build a company too big, the Henry George single tax will get you. What is this going to do? This is going to get rid of those corporations that ruin everything, but still let the people who want to grind in capitalism to grind in capitalism. And if you don't want to grind in capitalism, you... You can just take your UBI, buy an apartment in one of those new California apartment buildings, use your UBI to buy bread and vegetables from one of those small farmers, and everyone is happy. It's capitalism. It's also anarcho-communism. It doesn't allow anyone to starve. It does allow people to build up their own wealth. But as soon as they start sitting on their wealth rather than using it, they lose all of it. And it defeats the government bureaucracy because all the government's got to do is take in money from people and give money to people. No more forms to fill out. It would get a little more complicated, but you could extend this to wealth, and I really think you should. Basically, the rule would be the same. You can use your money to build buildings or employ people or even buy things, but you can't just sit around on your money. You would have to pay a big tax on the money you've got laying around. So what would you do if you were Apple and you had $200 billion laying around for no reason? Which, by the way, if you don't know, Apple literally has $200 billion that they don't spend. They just enjoy having. Harvard, frankly, doesn't have $200 billion, but also has billions of dollars that they don't use. Well, what would Apple have to do? It would have to spend it. And spending it would mean it would go into the pockets of workers. Because remember, we can't, it can't go into the pockets of billionaires because as soon as you have a billion dollars, you lose half of it to this wealth tax. Or... They can keep it, in which case they lose it to taxes, in which case it goes into the pockets of people via the UBI rather than billionaires. Same thing for Harvard. Harvard would have to either lose a lot of its money or would have to grow a lot bigger and educate a lot more people. Win, win, win. So that's pretty much it. I don't love capitalism and the grind. I wouldn't do it this way. But if this way seems like a viable way to do it, I would say, let's do it. This thing we have now, crony capitalism or managerial feudalism, whatever you want to call it, it is a nightmare. It's not what Marx thought capitalism was, but it's not what Adam Smith thought capitalism was. Those two mostly agree about what capitalism is. And Henry George, Martin Luther King, and Elizabeth Warren pretty much all agree on capitalism as well. So if all of these luminaries agree on this, why don't we have capitalism? It's easy. The rich people don't like it. And what's worse, they call themselves capitalists. So the next time um, you talk to one of those capitalists, 
agree with them. Tell them that you think capitalism is great. And then remind them that according to Adam Smith, if you have corporations, bosses, and extremely wealthy people, it is not capitalism anymore. Then see if they still want to defend capitalism. Okay, that's it. Please send your questions and comments to me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. You can also go to everydayanarchism.com and sign up for the newsletter. I've got two series going, one on what's wrong with democracy and one on the way that we can use science fiction to imagine an anarchist future. I'll also remind you that this podcast has no ads, no paywalls, and depends completely on the listeners for financial support. If you can, you can go to everydayanarchism.com and make a one-time or a monthly donation. If you can't, you can still help the show by telling a friend or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. All that's left to say is that the theme music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.